This is The Frontier of Finance, the podcast that covers the hottest new funds and important milestones of marquee funds in Canada. On The Frontier, we go directly to the source, interviewing portfolio managers, executives, and sales leaders at the top asset management firms. Stay on top of the latest innovations, react to market trends, and make better investment decisions for your clients. I'm your host, James Rockwood, and I'm welcoming you to The Frontier of Finance. U.S. equity is often viewed as the powerhouse of long-term potential for capital growth. However, over the past couple of years, we've seen a fair share of volatility across U.S. securities. On this episode, we're taking a look at U.S. equities and the strategy behind this asset class given the tumultuous nature of the market. And who better to bring on than an expert in the field? Today's guest brings more than 30 years of investment industry experience having held top strategist positions at firms like Oppenheimer, Merrill Lynch, and Piper Jaffray. This person has been renowned for his accuracy and has been frequently quoted in the financial press with regular appearances on CNBC, Bloomberg, and BNN. Today, he is the Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. I'd like to welcome Brian Belsky. Brian, it's great to have you join us. So, Brian, before we kick things off, notably, you're an investment strategist. Can you explain what that is to our audience? Sure. Um, again, in 32 years of, of doing this, you kind of uh, morph yourself into a strategist after doing a bunch of different things. I think the job of a strategist is really to kind of mix up the potpourri. It kind of sounds weird, but I think a strategist needs to wear several hats. And so I was schooled at university in accounting and finance. And then my first job on Wall Street uh, was an investment analyst. And I didn't have the the patience to be uh, an analyst under one individual industry, James. I wanted to learn more about the the entire market. And so I learned at a very young age that I wanted to become a market analyst. And then from there, kind of morphed into a true investment strategist. So an investment strategist in this traditional sense, James, writes, maintains, and analyzes uh, investment strategy research on indices with respect to whether or not it's a U.S. index or the Canadian index or Europe or uh, emerging markets from an equity perspective. There's also fixed income investment strategists that mostly focus on commodities and, and bonds and the like. But we, for the most part of our career, have only done equity investment strategy and so our current job at BMO Capital Markets is to analyze U.S. stock market and the Canadian stock market, publish reports that back up our process uh, and vision and what we say and see about uh, both markets. So I've been a senior investment strategist with respect to the top of the piece of paper in terms of my name since 1998. So uh, in, a, in a strategy before that, so had the very good fortune of, of having a long career and seeing a lot of different things and have probably a lot of different perspective, quite frankly, James, than other strategists that you maybe encounter out there. That's awesome. That's really helpful context, too, I think, as we go through and ask a bunch of these questions to get that sort of blended background. So kicking it off, I mean, I think it's really interesting that if you're looking, obviously, the impact of COVID-19 has left some investors feeling uneasy about their holdings. 
And now we're seeing sort of inflation compounded recently by the war in Ukraine. Would you say that there's still optimism or has that wavered at all? It's an interesting question because on the COVID side, I don't know why investors should be worried about their portfolios with respect to COVID. I mean, in 2021, U.S. stock market was up 27% and Canada was up a little over 20%. So we should be happy about that. But I think uh, Canadian investors are typically much more defensive and much more conservative and, and nervous investors. But I think, obviously, the primary fear out there is on inflation and interest rates. And I know that on a very, very short-term basis, we are living uh, by the dissection, the almost hourly dissection of what's happening in the conflict in Europe with respect to Russia and Ukraine. And so that really is at the forefront. But typically and historically, uh, equity markets do a good job of of discounting, uh, but really reacting in the way that they should with respect to absolute events. Now, geopolitical events are more absolute events, and then you have to worry about the unknown in terms of what's happening on a short-term basis. But once it's over, you know, we anticipate markets kind of getting back to uh, what they do in terms of uh, acting more on a fundamental basis. Now, the fundamental truth and the fundamental fears out there, quite frankly, is an R, I'm sorry, surrounding inflation and interest rates. And we've gone from uh, the majority of our questions from clients around the world uh, really focusing on inflation and interest rates to obviously our view on the market impact with respect to Ukraine and Russia. But I think given the fact of, of for, at least on a near-term fundamental basis and the pressure that, that this conflict is put on commodity prices in particular and oil especially, uh, it may elongate some inflation fears in the reality is inflation. But the truer reality, quite frankly, is that this too shall pass. This is not a secular thing or even a structural thing. It's excessively cyclical in our view. And from an inventory standpoint, aside from commodities, we've already been building inventory for a long time. So we still expect these issues in terms of inflation to fall off in the second half of the year. Probably not as fast as we thought two weeks ago prior to this event. But if there's anything that we uh, are not, in, we're not reactive. I refuse to be led by fear, rhetoric, and headlines. We have to kind of take a step back and, and really have a process and a discipline that we rely on. And one, obviously a big tenement of that is to not be reactive. Do you think that's harder when, when thinking about specifically like U.S. equities because of just the amount of coverage that the markets receive? They're sort of the, for lack of a better term, the, the, the center of mass for a lot of investing and some of the most well-known companies are listed on it. It's got a lot of capital in that market and, and coverage. Do you think it's, it's harder to stay the course um, when investing in U.S. equities uh, compared to any other market? Uh, it's a great question, but we say no, because we have the most information possible. So we are living in a society and business that is starving for information. And, you know, even the Fed's done a wonderful job in terms of laying the foundation and groundwork for what it's going to do in terms of raise interest rates. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But the U.S. is the most liquid and the most discernible market in the world for a reason. You know, we're the world's largest economy still. 
We have the world's best companies, not some of them, the best here. Canada's not too far behind, by the way. And I think that discernibility and consistency is what's going to continue to help the U.S. lead for the next three to five years, believe it or not. And that's only become more apparent the last couple of weeks, especially considering, I'm sorry, what's going on in Europe. I'm curious, you kind of answered this, but it'd be good to say explicitly, I mean, why do you think it's important for retail investors to consider U.S. equities in their investment strategy overall? And are there certain areas that are more important than others? You know, I was very fortunate, very humbled in my early days of my career uh, to meet Peter Lynch. Now, Peter Lynch at one point was the senior portfolio manager for a fund called Magellan. At one point, Magellan funded Fidelity was the world's largest mutual fund. And he was touring our offices out in Los Angeles. I was working at the time for a place called William O'Neill and Investors Business Daily. And Bill O'Neill himself brought him over to my cubicle and wanted me uh, to meet Peter Lynch. And so I had 15 minutes with Peter Lynch. And we were talking about equities and stuff in portfolio management and the like. And he told me, he said, Brian, he said, only invest in companies that you can understand. If you can't reach out and touch it, don't buy it. And I, I think that we've built a career around that, James. And it's it shows with respect to how we run money, especially with respect to the U.S. Equity Plus. Uh, we only buy big brand names. We don't really surprise a lot of people. At one point, the sexiest stock we owned was Netflix. And, and this was way before Netflix was the go-to streaming and really got us through COVID. Be that as it may, I really live and die by that. If I don't understand a stock, I'm not going to buy it. And the great thing about uh, the United States, we've got everything here. There's plenty of supply of companies. They are very well researched, and you can find out anything you want on the internet machine. Or you can go to a mall, and you can go reach out and touch it and see it. So I kind of live by that, and uh, so far that strategy has served us well. And I think, too, as, you're an, as an advisor is trying to explain a product or a portfolio to a customer, being able to bring it down into a way that they can touch and feel it, too, I think makes a lot of sense. I'd be also be interested, just given the proliferation of American companies in people's everyday lives, like would you say that portfolios generally are exposed to U.S. equities anyway? Like if you're purchasing U.S. equity funds, are you potentially doubling down on it from exposure from other products? Like I'm just interested to, to hear your thoughts on that. No, actually. And I, I think Canadian investors have been reticent to buy U.S. stocks for a long time. There's a home bias in Canada. Uh, that's number one. Number two, there's this, there's this need for some reason to buy European stocks is that I've been I've been very negative on Europe and in emerging markets for ten years. I've been at BMO, and there's a reason for that. And I don't know if it's political or what in terms of the whole landscape of Canadian investors. But of course, the Canadian index itself is not a diversified index, right? I mean, obviously, you have the big three sectors: bank, banks, materials, and energy, and technology starting to come up a, a little bit. But you obviously have to go south of the border to have a run like a full, diver, fully diversified portfolio, if, if that's indeed. But we have been of the opinion that many investors, aside from the last couple of years, have been massively underexposed U.S. equities. And I know this from my institutional business. You know, My job at BMO Capital Markets as the chief investment strategist is to, as I said, maintain a, a publishing exercise on both the U.S. and Canada. And there are some clients, James, 
that has been reading my thing, my, my research reports for 24 years from other big accounts around the world. And my global portfolio managers have really been underexposed U.S. companies up until, again, very recently, very recently. And they're underexposed different types of strategies as well because, again, they're trying to outsmart themselves and they're trying to reach out and touch something they don't understand. And so, again, I'll kind of bring it back to something my grandmother used to tell me, like, keep it simple, stupid. And that would be me, stupid. So uh, I've tried to, again... I, this is part of the part of the issue with respect to what investment strategy is and what investing is. I think investing is like life, and life is like investing. It's one big lesson. I am humbled to know that I'm going to be a better strategist tomorrow than I am today because I'm going to learn some stuff today that I can bring to the table tomorrow. And I think that's the way you have to kind of look at it. That was really well said. And then to bring it a bit closer to to the BMO universe and within the frontier, we'd love to cover. Uh, new fund launches, but also marquee funds hitting big milestones. And then in May last year, BMO announced the new BMO US All Cap Equity Fund. And then this joins the seven year old BMO US Equity Plus Fund as a way for Canadians to get their hands onto some US securities. I'd love to know what are some of the main features of these two funds and why is it important to add the US All Cap Equity strategy to BMO's offerings? Well, the U.S. Equity Plus Fund came about because asset management came to me and said, we want a Belsky list because I was running some other products internally that could only purchase research-followed companies. And even though we have an expansive, wonderful research department that covers a 1,000 companies or so, there was some real holes in their research uh, coverage that that I couldn't use for a portfolio. Like they didn't cover the autos or they didn't cover defense companies. There was a lot of technology they didn't cover. And so as they looked at things, they said, we want a really true Belsky list. And that's how the U.S. Equity Plus came about. It's 75% U.S., 25% Canada. That's the key thing. So AllCap came around because of one of our research sentiments. It was We were, again, very humbled that, that asset manager was actually reading our research. And we said, you know, over the next several years... I don't think it's as easy as owning large cap or small cap, growth or value. Have you ever seen the movie Radio? And Radio is at the diner with the coach, and the waitress comes over and says, what kind of pie do you want? She offers him two, two kinds of pie, and Radio looks at the waitress and says, both. And I think you can own growth at both growth and value. I think you can both own both large cap and small cap. And the nice thing about the LCAP portfolio, it's based on how we benchmarked it, meaning compared it to the S&P 1500, which is three indices, the S&P 500, 400, and 600. The S&P 500 is the large cap, S&P 400 is the mid cap, and S&P 600 is is the small cap. Now, some people ask us, why aren't you comparing yourself to the Russell? Russell indices and the Russell companies, very difficult people to deal with, very expensive in terms of their data. And I'm a data-driven analyst. We have to have the correct data. So we have historical constituents. We have contracts with S&P that we can get all the historical constituents because you can't, it, you can't analyze an index, James, with using current constituents because then you have survivorship bias. So you have to look back at and what was the index 5, 10, 15 years ago. And we can do that with the S&P, can't do it with the Russell. Anyway, the all-cap portfolio slash ETF slash mutual fund is based on all-caps. So small, medium, large is 20% SMID, 
and the rest is is large cap because that's how the impact that that's kind of the the makeup of the index. And so obviously there's a larger cap tilt to it, but I think kind of the more exciting thematic names from a longer term perspective are in the SMID category. And that's why we say it's going to have a little bit higher beta, but it has a little bit more runway, like three to five years. And so then from from a risk uh, category or, or, or that type of risk with the all cab equity versus the U.S. equity plus fund, like how would you compare those two? Well, we're going to own more names in the all cap. Because we'll have some 50 basis point positions small, and we'll have up to 350, 400 basis points where I consider a big boy position in a traditional large cap portfolio 4%. We'll go as high as 5 or 6% as we have with some of our other our portfolios that we run. 1% is kind of a, for lack of a way, a better way of putting it, kind of a wimpy position, meaning I'm either initiating a position and I don't feel great about it, or I've been whittling down a position. We don't... Um, in in the L cap, we have we have more positions, more varied in terms of size because of the beta component of it. So we can kind of redistribute the risk appropriately. In the large cap, in the large cap plus, it's usually right around fifty stocks. And then, how would you, as an advisor, want to explain like that type of nuance to a retail investor? Like, what type of financial goal would you be looking for? How would you want to explain or or make the pitch for either one of these products? Um, to a customer in a way that'd be really consumable to them. Well, all cap is your 100% exposure to the U.S. across the market cap spectrum, where the small mid cap side of it really is where the growth component, more of the thematic stuff in the large cap is more your steady eddy brand names, which you get from the U.S. equity plus. The nice thing about the plus is that you have the best of Canada, we think, with the liquidity and brands of America. What type of financial goal would you need to be thinking about? Is this sort of an every goal type thing? Is it a more of a growth-oriented investor? How would you want to think about this as an advisor? Like, What type of retail client would this be well-suited for? I don't really think it's a high-growth side of things. It's more growth at a reasonable price. It's not widows and orphans either. However, there are widows and orphan-type companies in there. Believe it or not, I think Apple is a widow and orphan company. I mean, Apple you want to own, right, forever, I think. Costco, a top 25 company in the world, period. And so we want to try, the be- try to have the best companies possible. And then we also have those companies in the all cap too, by the way. But then we also play some themes in there, like Sonos, I think, is a great theme. It's an audio theme. People talk about EV and sustainability and all this kind of fun stuff. But we don't talk about other other themes like either water or like audio. I think audio is a fantastic theme. That makes a lot of sense. And then and then, how would you use the all cap uh, U.S. all cap equity fund in a portfolio? What would you pair it well with? Well, it depends upon what your other portfolio offerings are. Whether or not you have a, a value contingent on the equity side. You know, again, I, as I said earlier. We're not big fans of, of Europe or emerging markets. However, that's where the relationship manager, the broker really has to kind of kick in and talk to the client in terms of what their risk tolerances are and what they want to own with respect to their equity perspective. And then, of course, relative to bonds or other assets, whether or not it's private equity or real estate or art or NFTs, just kidding. But just from a pure equity perspective, this is where you really want to kind of have your, I would say, more of a core type of strategy. 
past 2022, what are you expecting to see in the performance of U.S. equity markets? As you said, you're you're you know post this inflation, you think it's going to last a little bit longer than the initial outlook at the start of the year. Let's say, how do you see that going on rest of the year and then going forward? You know, the longer this goes on, with respect to the volatility and uncertainty surrounding Russia, Ukraine. Uh, the more it could potentially dampen growth. And so it's a little too early to wave the the all-clear flag. However, we do not see conditions present for recession, let alone a bear market. The stock market has been amazingly resilient through this and has not gotten into that bear market threshold. We've had the traditional 10% plus correction. The NASDAQ's been down more than 20, but that doesn't count because it's not an investable index. It's really the overall market, which would be the S&P 500 in America and the TSX, obviously, in Canada. Be that as it may, when we came out with our year-ahead projections, which is our big forecast product or research report uh, for 2021, we published it in November of 2021. It's my 22nd or 23rd official forecast on the S&P and my 10th consecutive forecast on Canada, we said 2021 is going to be the year of the second derivative. And what we meant by that is price performance was not going to be as high. Earnings growth was not going to be as high. Valuations were not going to be as high. And inflation wasn't going to be that high. And we're going to start to see that second derivative begin to slow down. So I do believe that's still going to happen in 2023, but I think this path to normalization, this whole term normalization, I'm I'm bored with it. There's too many people saying it. I think that normalization is a transition. I mean, if you think about society, let alone, and let's just, our our jobs, are we going to be in the office one day a week, three days a week, five days a week? Do you really want to be on the train? Do you really want to be standing in line getting coffee? Are you going to have a mask or no mask? What about my kids? What are they going to be doing? What am I going to do this summer? This is not uh, an easy fix. This is going to take a while. And so I think there's still going to be a portion of COVID PTSD and uh, what that means for our lives and what that means for the markets and what that means for fiscal response or monetary response in all of this. And this doesn't happen in one year. I think this is going to be a several-year event. Now, what I would say is, and I've said this already publicly in other forums, that I don't think a recession happens. I mean, I know a recession does not happen when everyone's looking for it. A recession happens when you least expect it. And if everybody and their mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle thinks we're going to have a recession this year because of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, I'll take the other side of that that bet. I think we have to worry more about a recession once and if we kind of return to more normalcy, whether or not we return to more um, normalized returns in markets to the tune of 7 to 9%, 8 to 10% per annum, to interest rates, 10-year treasuries staying above 2% for a while, with uh, GDP in the 2 to 3% range with um, interest rates um, kind of normalizing in terms of Fed policy where we're not going back and forth every year. I think we're a few years away from that. And so in a world of the unknown, that's why you want to buy the known. And what is the known? I think U.S. and Canadian equities. That's really interesting. I, I, I like that a lot. And I think that would be good guidance, too, for an advisor who's trying to speak to a client right now that's really worried about um, their portfolio and really worried about inflation because obviously, especially now with inflation starting to hit and people really starting to feel it, 
as well as definitely seeing it most obviously in gas prices, which are which are soaring above two dollars a liter right now in Canada in some parts, and um, going into new sort of unprecedented levels. I think it's going to be really interesting for an advisor to be able to use what you just said there to try to articulate how how the strategy needs to play out now, the longer term view of things, and how to think about it from a, a recession cyclical component. You know, a lot of the the points you made earlier around it's there's not a structural issue. It's it's more of a, a cyclicality piece. There isn't anything fundamentally wrong or off with, with with what's going on right now. So I think that's going to be really helpful as as advisors try to think about that. Would there be anything else you'd add, or do you think or, when you're thinking about an advisor trying to speak to a client who's really worried right now about how to think about things or about how to how to stay stay long? Like what what, what would you think there? If there's any other points you want to add? Well, I think. You know, one of the things that we've been saying for years and years is that the stock market is a market of stocks. And I think advisors making decisions or investors making decisions at the index level is not the way to think about it. You get, you, this is about companies and stock picking and staying in those names and not being reactive to the headlines. This thirst and need to know everything and kind of combing through things and making decisions based on, on bullet points, it's going to get you in trouble where... You know, portfolios like these two are designed to be in these real companies with real themes and real brands. It's not like Costco is going away. It's not like J&J is going away. And I, I think that's the kind of way you want to think about this right now. And again, too, unfortunately, we are inundated with information and the media loves to scare everybody. And you remember, fear sells. And you should never base your life or your investing uh, based on fear. And so what I always like to say is, what's faith in our business? Fundamentals. And if you think about what companies have been able to do in my second half of my career in terms of rebuilding balance sheets and cash flow and tell their stories and be much more regulated and I, I think true than they were my first 10 years of my career in the 90s. Uh, it's a vastly different environment. So we feel really good about about the art and the act of in, investing in equities for the next 10 years for sure. And then beyond the BMO US all cap equity and the BMO US equity plus fund, what else are you seeing for BMO on the US equity front? Any other solutions you want to highlight? We have the very good fortune of doing um, an, a lot of other things within BMO uh, and outward. But you know, at the at the end of the day, I think these portfolios really encapsulate everything that we do uh, in 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 our in our process and our discipline. And again, I think the all cap is one of these things where you don't have to try to outsmart yourself, right? So, am I going to be a small cap? So, for instance, here's a great example: in in February, small mid cap crushed the markets on a relative basis. Now, remember, in the fourth quarter, when interest rates were going up, small mid-caps got hit. Large caps were doing fine as everybody kind of chased the index, making decisions at the index level, chasing the index, buying Apple and Microsoft at the end of the year to kind of chase up the market. But then January, we saw what happened, right? Interest rates got up, everybody hated tech, and then there was that broader sell-off in January. But in, in February... Small mid cap did very well, killed the market, killed the market on a relative basis. In fact, on a two to one rate, that's what makes this product 
really interesting because then you have exposure to it. You have to think, okay, this month I'm going to be a small cap manager. Oh, this month I'm going to be a large cap manager. So it kind of takes care of all that. And again, we're very fortunate to be able to do both of these in terms of the U.S. Equity Plus and the all cap. That's awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for walking through these two products, walking through some of the larger sort of macro view of what's going on, helping us discuss some of the uncertainty right now in in sort of Q122. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been super helpful. I appreciate it. I've been waiting to say this the entire time. Space, the final frontier. Every time you say frontier, I'm like, space, the final frontier. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uncertainty and volatility in the market can feel very stressful for people, and it's important to acknowledge this as an advisor. Speaking with your client about volatility can help keep them level-headed when faced with temporary losses in the market and may even lead to greater discovery about your client's goals and risk tolerance. Maintaining a pulse and checking in on your client's individual situation will lend itself to fostering a better long-term relationship. That's essential when we look at stock market performance. As Brian mentioned, it's not a stock market, it's a market of stocks. The phrase seems overtly simple, but it's meant to reinforce a long-term perspective and recall the principle of buying companies you know or can touch. That is to say that even in the face of short-term market volatility, focusing on high-quality companies that you know can ultimately lead to success. I'd like to thank Brian Belsky once again for sharing his perspective on investment strategy and candor on the market today. If you'd like to learn more about the BMO US Equity Plus and US All Cap Equity Funds, visit BMO Fund Central. The link will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to more, subscribe to the Frontier Finance wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.